welcome to this episode, the Changing Career One of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jacobs. When we get suggestions for topics, we put them out there for people to pick and were a little surprised when this one got so much interest. Changing careers seems to be something more commonplace in L&D and maybe something women do more. So to talk this through, we've three guests for you. Our first guest is Lina Jukunas. Lina is the academic director of a non-profit post-secondary English language school in San Francisco. Outside of her full-time role, she's a freelance educational consultant and instructional designer. Our second guest is Jessica Haggerty. Jessica is a digital learning designer at the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. She describes herself as a self-starter who's passionate about instructional design. Our third guest is Amanda Nadri. Amanda is a learning experience manager at a non-profit organisation that helps minority-owned small businesses reach their goals through multilingual educational resources, coaching and financing. This was recorded in March of 2023, some three months ago, and I'd be interested in following up some of the threads. See what you think. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Lina, Jessica and Amanda talking about changing careers. Uh, hello, Lina. How are you today? I'm doing well, Jessica. Thanks. Um, how are you doing? Yes, I'm very good, thank you. Having a a lovely chilled day, just a bit of shopping because I'm in between roles, so I'm a sort of lady of leisure at the moment. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> very nice. Um, and Amanda, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm on a and actually, considering it's the UK, it's been quite a nice sunny day here. So that's awesome. I feel like that's rare for you all. Yes, because you're both, I, I guess, in different parts of America, but you're both in America. Lynn and I are actually both in California, but we're in different parts. So I'm down in LA. And Lynn, you said you're more in the Bay Area, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, I'm in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> It it's, pretty cool it's been city. really rainy here lately, actually, but it is sunny and 70 in LA today. So I'm going to enjoy the day a little bit. Amazing. Um, and I know, Amanda, you were talking before about your experience in changing careers. And you mentioned that you got a degree in Spanish language. Yeah, I have a degree. I have a master's degree in Spanish literature. Um, when I started that program, I thought I would want to be a professor, so like go and get a PhD and everything. And I, you know, did the master's degree part of the program and realized that what I really liked was the teaching that I had to do. You know, grad students often have to teach to fund their studies, and so I did that. But um, I really liked the teaching and the instruction and designing my lessons and figuring out how to optimize and everything. And I really didn't like the Spanish literature part of it. So um, I did kind of a couple of jobs in between before I ended up in instructional design, basically where I could find a job. So I was in higher administration for a little bit. I had a customer service role for a hot second, just trying to find my kind of place. And then um, when the pandemic hit, I had a, I'd had a contract position. And so the, my contract position ended March 1st, 2020. Great timing course the world shut down about a week and a half later and so my husband really encouraged me to take the time to figure out what I really wanted to do instead of just taking a job which is what I had done before and so 
I really spent the time think like introspecting and thinking about like, you know, how can I fill this need for education without being a classroom teacher? Because that wasn't really what I was interested in doing. And I ended up in the e-learning and instructional design world. And there were so many transferable skills from what I had learned in higher ed administration with organization and management and those types of things into e-learning and instructional design. And also from my teaching experience, I did take a few online courses too to get some of the basics down. But um, that's, that's how I ended up. I applied to 75 jobs during the course of the pandemic before I got the one that I'm in right now. And they hired me with technically zero years of experience, which was you know, a lot of transferable skills, but zero years of experience and it worked out. Like I've been here for more than two years now. I love it. Did you it. say 75? Like what was that? Did you say, did you say 75 jobs? Yeah, I kept a spreadsheet. Wow. wow. <laughs> because it was, it was peak COVID. So nobody was, there were so many hiring freezes. Nobody was hiring, especially with limited experience. And so it took a long time to find a job, but I stuck with it. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, we could, live on my husband's salary for the time being and so we were able you know I had that support and I was able to really figure it out that way but yeah I so relate to what you're saying Amanda um I was teaching English abroad in Turkey and I was on a fellowship there and then the pandemic hit so my contract ended early and I was sent back home to the states and when I came back really tough job market to try and find a teaching position at the university level during the pandemic. So I really, I took time to try and figure out what was my next career move. And like you, I devoted time to trying to upskill and discover new possibilities. And I found instructional design. So I really devoted myself to learning all that I could about that field. Um, I took a certificate program and I was just wholeheartedly in pursuit of an instructional design position. I applied to like you spreadsheet somewhere around, you know, 50 to 75 jobs and get felt like I was getting nowhere. So it, what happened was I just had to pause. I took a month off. I said, I'm just going to pause the job hunt because I feel like I'm just banging my head against a wall and, and really not seeing any progress. Um, and after I took that pause, I ended up getting a position still in my field of TESOL, uh, teaching English to speakers of other languages, but instead of a teaching position, I stepped into an administrative role um, as an academic director. So, you know, it was um, not what I expected because I had really put so much time and energy into trying to uh, get my foot into the world of instructional design, but um, even so, I ended up uh, in a new role, but still in my field that I was that I was trained to be in. Um, but you know, sometimes these transitional roles that aren't—it's not quite what you were looking for, but it's different from what you were doing before—can be so valuable, and you gain different experience and everything, and can help you get into a role that you ultimately want to be in. Or sometimes you just fall into a role that you weren't thinking about, and you're like, "Actually, I love this. This is great." 
this is where I want to be. Now. Exactly. Because, I mean, exactly. Mine was a because I originally well was a pharmacy technician. Um, and I was working with the electronic prescribing and medicines administration training team. So that team, our role was to sort of build and manage the electronic prescribing workflows on the hospital's electronic prescribing system. Um, but while I was in that role, I ended up training others on how to use the system. And then during COVID, uh, that training was moved online. So it was all sort of converted into e-learning and I was doing that. And that's when I was like, oh, I really enjoy doing this. Um, and that's what started my interest in it. So I decided, actually, I, I really enjoy doing this. So I'm going to see if I can learn more about this. And that's when I started doing like webinars, found some different courses, joined the learning network in the UK. Um, and then I think it, while I was learning more about it, um, my interest continued because I really liked, I don't know if it's the same in America and I feel like it probably is. I found that in the UK, people in the sort of learning and development industry are so helpful. Like everybody I talk to is always willing to share what they know. So if I reach out to somebody for help, they always say, yes, that's absolutely like more than happy to put an hour to one side, to have a chat with you. Um, I mean, I've even spoken actually saying a couple of people in America I know I've like reached out to people in America before and they've been happy to chat with me there's a lady in New Zealand um she's happy like she she had a chat with me so yeah it just seems to be a really sort of really helpful and friendly industry so that was the thing that made me continue going this is this is the job I want to do because I want to be in an industry where people are this helpful I completely agree I think people here are so they're so friendly. And I think some of that comes, a lot of people are not necessarily trained educators. Like Lena, you're a really trained, I mean, you have a degree in education, you're a trained educator, right? And you have all that experience. And some of us have more anecdotal experience from other jobs, but we all have this sort of natural educated, like, you know, teachery personality, that um, didactic personality where we want to share, we want to help, we want to teach and instruct and educate. And I think that makes the field much friendlier to get into. And also it's a growing field. I mean, there's less competition for jobs because there are so many jobs coming out. There's still competition, of course, but I think that makes people feel a little less protective of the information, you know? Yeah. Do you ever uh, wonder about if the field of instructional design is becoming oversaturated? Because I feel like I've seen so many people wanting to transition um, and even especially from teaching positions into instructional design or e-learning. And so I'm kind of wondering now, mm. is it going to become more and more competitive? And um, I think you might be right. getting saturated? Yeah, because I, I was similar to yourself. Like last year I was applying for jobs last summer and I got a bit disheartened by it because I had a few interviews and you have to do a lot of prep work for the interviews because they always want you to put together a presentation or put an example together. So after a few, I was Absolutely. just a bit yeah, disheartened and I thought I'm going to give it a break. So I actually gave it about a year's break um, and just sort of worked out what I wanted to work on. And when I came, uh, when I decided to start reapplying, I was finding it harder to get the interviews a year later than what I had the year before 
And when I spoke with somebody in the UK about it, they were saying that it's, um, like you said, there's a lot more people now applying for the jobs than there was a year ago. He was saying like he could advertise a job and maybe have 10 people um, apply for it. Whereas now he was having like up to 60 people applying for the same job. Um, So yeah, I think there is a lot more competition perhaps for the roles. I agree. I think the growth really accelerated during COVID and it's still a growing field like on in net, but it is growing at a much slower pace. And so you're seeing more competition. Although I will say the job that I got after I was hired, my manager told me that 450 people applied for that position. Like it, like the co- like the peak COVID job market was absolutely insane. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's interesting. I think, I don't know. I'm not sure why the field feels so friendly, even if there is starting to be a little bit more competition for jobs, but it just really does. I wonder though, if it's because we're in a role where we want to educate, um, it's kind of in our nature, if that makes sense. So yeah, we want to be educators. Think, so why would we not continue to share what we know with others? Yeah, I think we can't help it sometimes too. <laughs> yeah, we get excited by what we learn and like things that we... Um, you know, stuff that you pick up, you kind of, I say show off as well, but I guess there is an element that if you're an educator, you want to show what you've created as well. So there is a bit of an element maybe of wanting to show off what you can do. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think sometimes the people who are going to appreciate that the most are the are other instructional designers. Um, so I guess that's why we perhaps enjoy sharing so much with each other. Yeah, I think that's true too. Jessica, um, you talked a bit about your past role, mm. but you are about to step into a new role. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Can you share a little bit more about what's next for you? Yeah. So, so as I said, in my previous role, I was a pharmacy technician working in the electronic prescribing team, um, kind of sidestepped into training while I was there. So that was never meant to be my role, but ended up at delivering the training, creating the training and found myself sort of essentially doing instructional design um, and decided actually this is what I really enjoy. Um, and I like it, it was definitely the people, the people I met are the ones that it's really encouraged me to go, I'm going to step away from what I do because as a pharmacy technician, I'm a quali- I'm a registered professional as well. So I have to pay to be on a register to be able to work in my field um, I guess it's a secure job that I was in because people are always going to get sick. So there's always going to be a need for healthcare. Um, but I also just decided that I wasn't enjoying the job anymore. And even though I was working in the NHS and people would tell you like, oh, the, the pension's great. You've got it, you know, you've got it really made. I was also like, I'm, I, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my mid 30s. Um, I don't want to be working for another 40 years for a pension in a job that I don't enjoy. So I'm going to make that change. Um, and it definitely, I've got to say, I think it really is just the people that I've met along the way that really have driven me to make that change. Like, I don't think I would have felt brave enough to do it if it wasn't for the all the different people that I've met in the industry. Um, yeah, I, it's definitely the people. <laughs> It's definitely the people that encouraged me to do it. Huge props to you for making that change because that's a huge change and it's scary and like so impressed that you 
did it and not only did you do it but when you needed to take a moment away from the job application craziness you did yeah I think because Lena you were sort of saying that you had a similar transition or like you were in a different role oh you were were you teaching you were a teacher Mm -hmm. right yeah I was teaching um I was teaching English as a second language here in the States. And then when I was teaching abroad, English as a foreign language um, at the university level. And yes, the, the pandemic sort of spurred me into trying to figure out my next career move because simply there weren't any jobs to be had. And um, coming back to the States was unexpected for me at the time. So it kind of threw my whole plan out the window, which was to continue um, teaching at least for a little while um, outside the U.S. So, you know, really upon reflection, I was burnt out. I was very Um, I was tired. I was tired of working so darn hard, um, having, you know, taking on so many tasks and responsibilities outside of teaching that weren't paid and, you know, working lawyer hours, but not getting a lawyer salary, right? So I think that was really fuel for the fire um, that spurred me to really think about, okay, what is my next career move? Because this is unsustainable. I can't keep um, piecing together various jobs to make it work to be a teacher. And especially in California, the Bay Area, it's, you know, second most expensive only second only to New York so it's you know it is really really challenging to try and remain in the field of um education and did you have because we were talking about um interviews and uh, Amanda mentioned about having 75 apply for 75 roles did you say it was a similar you sort of had a similar experience in the number mm-hmm. of jobs you were applying for mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what um, were the I did. Places I did. like for because I don't know if it's similar in America. Like in the mm. UK, I found when I was applying, um, it's not just one interview; it's about two or three interviews. And by the time you get mm-hmm. to the second and third one, they want presentations. Yeah. Um, it's a, yeah. It's sometimes it felt like a full time job just doing that. Yes. So is it yes. similar in America as well? I personally had a very similar experience. I. Um, Yes, I had a few interviews where there were multiple rounds. And by the time I got to that second or third round, I would be tasked with a project. And I would devote you know, hours and hours to put together whatever it was they were asking for, you know, um, an instructional design proposal of how to overhaul, you know, XYZ course. And I would, you know, just devote so much time and energy and uh, present it and feel so proud of my work. And then mm, you didn't get the job. Um, so just having that happen um, yeah. repeatedly is, of course, very disheartening. And that's what ultimately led me to just take a break. I think we all kind of have that similar story. Um, we took 
a break from our job hunt and from this, you know, hustle to try and really find the job. Um, and I think, I think it's, I think there's a lot of power in stepping away and taking a break. Um, of course, financially, if you're able to do so, um, to try and really just regroup and, and rest so that you can come back with a, you know, clearer head Mm. back into the hustle. I say the bit that got me sometimes was the feedback when they would give you feedback Mm. on, and you just think really like it, that just seems like such a, like a petty thing to pick up. I'm thinking, is that really why I didn't get the job? Um, Mm. So yeah, sometimes the feedback was um, made it harder. I think. I wish I had gotten feedback. I feel like in my interviews where I presented some project or, you know, element, I feel like there was a lack of feedback. And ultimately I was hungry for feedback so I could know, you know, what could have made me a stronger candidate? What did I do that ultimately, you know, led you to go with someone else or maybe it's not something I did maybe you went with someone else for a specific reason and I think that to me is always the hardest part the not knowing why you didn't get hired when you have already gone through you know almost to the to the very end yeah yeah because when you've got to that bit oh sorry no no you're good I think I was just gonna say I think in the U.S. a lot of companies don't feel the need to give feedback like they don't feel that onus to help applicants improve some of them do but it's not common I'm not sure if it's more common in the UK or not just that culture but it's like I mean that's if they tell you that you didn't get the job instead of just ghosting you which also happens quite often unfortunately you just never hear anything um I think they seem to be quite good in the UK they do offer the feedback if you want it I think the bit I struggled a bit is coming from working in the NHS for the last 10 years, interviewing for roles in the NHS is very different to the private sector that they will, when they're interviewing you, they use a score system. So, and they will assign you so many points for the answer that you give. And then whoever gets the most points or scores the highest is the person they offer the job to. Um, So sometimes then when I was asking for feedback or getting my feedback from the companies, I'm like, but what are you, how have you sort of decided, like, was there, like, especially with the presentations, like, was there, like, a scoring system? And did you assign at a percentage of that scoring system to the presentation? And quite most, they always looked at me, like, baffled, like, no, no, we didn't do that. So I'm like, so how are you sort of deciding? Because what if somebody does really well in the interview not so great on the presentation and vice versa like and that's how, and you've got to make a choice I do, like yeah so for me I guess coming from the NHS going into these kind of interviews I struggled a bit with how how are they scoring me yeah industries are so different industries are so different you know if you're in corporate social responsibility versus nonprofit versus academia versus um, learning and development for a corporation like it's just such a different space each and each one has its own lingo that you have to learn or you have to pretend that you at least know the basics of for an interview and it's 
so much when you're in that career transition process to make your presentation or refine your portfolio and apply and then have the interviews and, and, and it's just, it builds up to be a lot and it can really weigh on you. Mm. I don't know what you both think as well about JDs, like your job descriptions, when you look at one and they sometimes are like two pages long and that I feel like they're asking for everything under the sun. Um, and like, were you conf- like, did you apply for those sort of jobs where you felt, oh, I don't tick every box but I tick enough of the boxes to apply for or would you only apply for the job if you felt like you ticked 100% of the boxes I would apply for a job if I felt like I ticked most of the boxes um no but here's my thing a job description is a wish list right like this is what we would like the perfect candidate to have and very few people are going to fill that all of those there very few people are going to be able to check off all of those boxes. And so you can get close enough and, and they like you and they like the work that you do, the presentation, your portfolio, whatever, and they'll hire you. Or you could check every box, but they're like, you don't fit our company culture. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't fit your company culture, but that's why they didn't hire you. And you just, I mean, especially in the US, it's a black box. Like you have no idea a lot of times why they didn't hire you. Or yeah. Cause I, I've heard a lot now that CVs are going through machines. So people aren't, it's not someone reading them. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I'm totally blanking on the name. It's the resume scanner ATS app or that's applicant tracking system. But anyway, it's, it's, you know, recruiters and hiring managers, first of all, they're flooded with resumes. So they don't actually physically have the time. So yeah, sure. AI is a tool to help us. So ultimately, when they, um, you know, whittle down this huge pool of candidates to the top, whatever, maybe dozen or so, then they're only going to spend a few seconds reading the resume. Um, but I, I mean, I relate to that. Um, in my role, I hire instructors and I often get, I don't get thousands of resumes, but I, you know, I, 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 get a bundle of them. And for me to sit down and actually really thoroughly read the resumes, there just isn't time. So really a lot of the times it's just a quick scan and, you know, what is the first, at the first pass, what is your reaction? What does your gut tell you? What stands out? Is it yes or no? Um, But back to the job descriptions, I, we have a funny little uh, thing in my organization where we just, we joke that my job description is one bullet, other duties as assigned. It's just, (laughs) there's just so many things that come up. And I think my role right now is just managing everything that, all the unexpected things that happen. Um, So kind of back to what you were saying, Amanda, is that the job description is like this wish list. And the reality of that position, once you step into it, really might look totally different than the job description. And I think 
um, being flexible and, and showing that from the get-go in the interview process that you have that agility um, and mindset to adapt, um, recognize needs and kind of, you know, be the one to take the initiative. I think that can also go a long way. Because mm. I remember it changed for me, my perspective on job descriptions a few years ago, because I had um, went to a, a speaker, we're listening to some speakers and um, one of the female speakers was saying that the reason that there are less women in sort of more senior positions is because when we look at a job description um if we only fit sort of like 70 percent of it we might decide not to apply for the job because we don't feel like we fit we you know we fit enough of the job description whereas a man if they fit 50 percent of the job description will apply anyway um so that did change my outlook when I was looking at job descriptions I was like okay I don't have all of that but like I taught myself how to use Captivate so I know I can teach I know I can learn the other softwares that perhaps they're asking for that I don't have so I don't need to know 100% um someone else said as well that quite often like you said Amanda about being a wish list it will say have experience in so if there's a software that they've mentioned and you don't have experience you could go and get the free trial play around with it for you know an hour or two and then you have experience with that software and that's what they're asking for so yeah I mean there's a there's a balance of fake it till you make it and like once you get the job before you start you have those two weeks or that month or however long it is where you can brush up on those Photoshop skills or those, you know, if you know Captivate and they want Articulate, so you're going to brush up on Articulate or whatever it is for a few hours and figure it out as you go. Like there's nothing wrong with learning on the job. Yeah, I think that's what maybe my last interview where I got the job, um, I maybe articulated it better to them that because they asked me about a couple of, pieces of software they use um that you know yeah I, I haven't used that before but I know I can learn how to use it because I'm passionate passionate about this and I really enjoy it um and if I can learn articulate I don't see how I couldn't learn some of these other pieces of software that they use I think they said they do html for their because uh, they're using moodle so I was like yeah I could I'm I'm sure I can learn html like it's not it seems pretty straightforward enough. So, um, but yeah, they seemed happy with that. So, what's your new role, Jessica? Uh, so, I've got a role as a digital learning designer at the Royal College of Veterinarian Surgeons. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm really, really excited. So, I start on Monday. Congratulations. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes, so, congratulations. Thank you. But I mean, the whole process of applying for that role was. I felt the experience was different to some of the other roles that when I saw the job advertised, it had the salary um, advertised it, it, cause a lot of the jobs I've looked at don't have a salary and then they'll ask you, what's your expectation? So I used to always ask them what they'd budgeted and they've always budgeted a range. Um, so I just liked that they were upfront with how much the salary was they also um, put on there the dates when they would be doing the first interview and the second interview. So I was like, they're just being really upfront from the very beginning, what's going to be expected and what you can expect from them. Um, 
I really liked that the second interview was in person. I mean, I hadn't done an in-person interview for about five years because obviously due to COVID, everything else had been virtual. But again, it had said that as well, that the second interview would be in person. Um, so I really liked how organised they were. So I think that just that the whole my experience of applying for that role was different to some of the others because they just it was they were very transparent about what they were going to expect from the people who were applying for the job. And I really, really appreciated that. It seems like they knew what they wanted and it make that makes it easier for you to both respond to that need and to determine if you fit that need, which is really great. But going back to the no salary thing, this makes me so mad when they do this because they're tra- what they're trying to do. And they just passed a law in California line. I don't know if you've seen this, that, that now they have to post a salary range with mm. uh, job recs. It makes me so mad what, when they do this and they ask you, what are your salary expectations? Because what they're trying to figure out is how cheap can they get you for? Like, what's the least amount of money that they can pay you? So instead of saying, oh, well, you really are worth this, but you said 10K less than that. Okay, well, I'm going to pay you 10K less because I can get you for that. And it's if you don't know, especially with remote jobs, which a lot of e-learning jobs are remote or partially remote, like you don't necessarily know that, like where the headquarters are. And so that changes how you're going to be paid. So like, if you apply, I have one of my colleagues works in Arkansas, but we're based in California, like our headquarters are in California. And so the pay range is different, right? Arkansas, mm-hmm. for for UK listeners, you might not know this. It's not a very wealthy state. It's much more rural. And so, you know, it's much the cost of living is a lot lower. That's why salaries in California tend to be higher because cost of living is higher, of course. But, you know, it's just, I, I feel like this is partially also, I think, why you want more women in leadership so that things like this don't happen as much. Maybe that's just a stereotype that I'm thinking that men are making these decisions, but Mm -hmm. let's put women in leadership because I feel like women are more like, yeah, let's pay you what you're worth. Like you are a human Mm -hmm. being with experience. Well, the lady who had put up the job description, well, I've just said it was a lady. So the person who did all of that work was a woman. So perhaps like you said, she appre- she understands and appreciates that um, it's only fair to publish the salary um, and also not to have a range. I think the range, because I I never understood where the pay gap was between men and women because I was a bit naive, again, working in the NHS, you're all on the same salary. If you're a band six, you're all on the same salary as each other. Um, and somebody said, well, it's when you get into, into these senior positions and it's... Um, they've said oh it's between this and this men tend to negotiate more money than women do so I was like well it just doesn't seem fair like because we're both applying for the same job but they're more confident at asking for more money they are the other thing that I would encourage people to do when you so in the U.S. a a lot of jobs I feel like I'm not even government jobs I think have salary bands and you could be anywhere within that band if you're a certain level and if you're not in a like a regulated government type position, like it, it's the wild west, right? It could be anything. And so I would really encourage you, especially with your female colleagues and male colleagues as well, to talk to talk about your salary. Don't be afraid to say like, hey, I make this much. How much do you make? We're in similar roles because you can you can use that. And if you can't, maybe another woman can or maybe another colleague can then use that to go to management and say, hey, I know that my colleague is making more than I am for the same role. And here are 12 reasons why I'm doing my job really well. You need to pay me more. And it works. Like it is a, a, 
evidence-based technique to close the pay gap. It'd be great if they just paid us, but you know the same. I mean, that would be fantastic. Lina, I don't know. It seems like you have hiring experience in a hiring role. So maybe you have different insight into this than Jessica and I do as uh, more on the applicant side. Ah, boy. Yes. Um, You know, I honestly think it is. It's tricky. It's really tricky. I am with you both um, in favor of transparency. And really, I'm I'm, I'm trying to think how, how can we advocate for more transparency, right? Um, and Amanda, you gave an example of how it can start internally, right? Employees having conversations with each other and being brave enough to talk about money, which often is something that people don't want to talk about and that is an uncomfortable conversation. But I think we need to find ways and spaces for us to have these difficult conversations so that we can go grow from them especially you know if we're thinking about how can we get more women in leadership roles you know how is it that we're we're gonna make that happen right huge snaps for that think it's a big question yeah (laughs) snaps might be another podcast episode yeah and I think um, I've also seen in my own company um when HR like an HR department will take that on and they'll do reviews and they'll say like these are two similar positions but they're being paid differently and they'll do adjustments based on that so it can be I agree that it can be internal and it can be sort of a bottom-up you know from the employee approach but it can also be an organizational approach as well and if for anybody out there who has a say into what, you know, HR policies are, company-wide policies are around salary and practices, implement these kinds of practices if you can. It helps people. It really makes a difference. And it makes them feel valued, too. Well, it seems like we're coming to a natural end. (laughs) It's been really good talking with you both, Amanda and Jessica. I love talking to you guys. Jessica, good luck on your first day on Monday. That is so exciting. Is it a remote job or do you go in person? It's going to be a mixture. Yeah. So hybrid. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I've just sort of got my, got my new laptop today. So just sort of setting myself up with all of that. So yeah, very excited. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Hope it goes well. well. It was so nice to meet the two of you. I'm looking forward to connecting with you guys more in the future. And Jessica, we want to hear how your first day goes. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'll, um, I mean, I will be posting. I think my intention is to post on LinkedIn once I've had my first day. <laughs> so <laughs> let people know how it's going. Have a great day, guys. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. I love the dynamic of the three speakers in this episode. And who doesn't want to know how Jessica is getting on? Thanks to Lina, Jessica and Amanda for their time and contribution. It is, as always, much appreciated. You'll find all the contact details for our three guests in the show notes, along with some links and relevant information that came out through the conversation. We are still recording and we have gone into a rich vein of topics recently. And this is going to continue. We've had some marvellous ideas suggested as podcast episodes and some great ones set to record. You can find all the details on the Women Talking About Learning website, along with past episodes, 
and how to donate to Women Talking About Learning to help us keep the lights on. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks and next time it's the peer learning one. As always, thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.